Let me uh, welcome you to RUF. Uh, let me get this over with. My, uh, these, at least these are the questions I keep hearing everybody ask. My name is Brian Sorgenfry. It's my third year here. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. I majored in marketing, and I'm not going through Rush this year. So, uh, but let me also uh, introduce uh, our three new interns. This is Kaylee Epps, right? Yeah. Maddie Willis is somewhere. There's Maddie, and then Ben Milam. Yeah, Ben, stand up. Um, no. Especially if you're here for the first time and checking this out, we really do hope that you find RUF to be a safe place, uh, no matter whether you're convinced or unconvinced about the truth claims of the Bible, that you can really examine and see for yourself and question and figure out, is Jesus real? Uh, and we hope you can bring questions every week. We believe that the Bible, that it's, it's not just words about God, but it's actually the very Word of God, His authoritative, inerrant Word. I don't know how that strikes you. That comes across probably uh, differently to different ears. For some, it probably sounds archaic. Others, maybe you grew up hearing that. But we believe that God's Word fundamentally reveals Jesus, the God who came for us, the God who came for broken people. And so what we do on Wednesday nights usually is we go through a book of the Bible. However, this semester is going to be a little different. For this semester... We are going to look at a different passage of Scripture every week to see what the Bible tells us about relationships. Uh, dating, marriage, sex, friendship, and everything in between. Why? We try to do it every four years because it's central to where you are as an 18 to 23-year-old on a college campus. Um, I would just ask you to consider, consider what your past seven days have been like, especially if this is your first experience of Ole Miss. Yes, you're trying to figure out uh, how to get around campus. You're probably trying to figure out your schedule. Uh, some of you are probably trying to uh, figure out how to hang a filter and stalker to sit, so it's not get some bubonic plague or something like that. Um, but even amidst all of that, you know this is true. What you're most keenly aware of, the things that, that bring out our insecurities and our, and our anxieties, it's people. It's relationships. It's does anybody know who I really am? And it's the same thing that brings out joy and excitement. It's what you do. And when you, when you get to the end of college, when I talk to people on their way out, the number one thing that, that people talk about is not their classes, is not the great things that they learned. It's relationships, good or bad, or things that they wish that they had had. Relationships are just central to who you are. And so each week, we're going to look at Scripture and let God's Word inform our view of relationships. But also... Hopefully, let God's Word bring us to Jesus who promises to heal all the damage that we've done to one another and all the damage that's been done to us. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, uh, we come to you tonight needy. Uh, many of us are probably here uh, wondering why we are and wondering what's going on. And we ask uh, as we bring our confusion, our doubts, our shame, our questions you'd be the God that you promised to do uh, and, and be a God that takes away shame, be a God that is truth uh, and justice and a God that is full of grace. And would you help us to see Jesus? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, so you have the scripture uh, on your sheet. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll tell you uh, what I'm going to read. But verse, Genesis 1, verse 26. 
God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his own image, so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created a male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I'm going to skip down to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make, a, I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. All right, if you hang around RUF long enough, you're going to realize a lot of RUFs do series on relationships. I'm just going to tell you a lot of what I say, most of it, none of it actually is original to me. We're just, we just all share stuff. Uh, some less new, some, some, a lot from my friend Matt Howell, so just, just know that. All right, so we're going to look at two things tonight. Genesis 1 and 2, what do they show us about relationships? Just two things, that we are designed for relationships with others and that we're designed for a relationship with God. Relationship with other people, relationship with God. First, designed with relationship with others. Look at verse 27. If we are looking at the Bible at the beginning of it, and we're looking at, at the way that God made His world before sin messes everything up, before rebellion happens, one way to think about Genesis 1 and 2 is this. This is the world as God intended it to be. This, this is the blueprint. This is how things are supposed to function. And you know this. You know something's purpose according to its design, right? For instance, consider like a, uh, a popular energy drink of the day, okay? Uh, something like a, it's called a bang, right? A single cold bang. So if, if you're ready to go to sleep and you decide to gulp down a single shot cold bang before crawling into bed and then you're still awake one hour later because you're wired and you frustratingly say... Well, this drink didn't work. This drink, this drink, this drink is terrible because it didn't help me go to sleep. I would humbly suggest that your characterization of that drink is wrong because you don't know its purpose. You thought its purpose was to help you to sleep. The purpose of it was actually to stimulate you and to keep you up. Because it, the purpose of something is, is according to its design. Well, follow that, the point of that silly example and bring it to Genesis 1 and 2. If this is God's original design of the world and people he made, then you can ask this question of this passage. What is the purpose of me? Why am I here? What is the purpose of humanity? What's the original design? And Genesis 1 and 2, I think, gives a fascinating and significant answer because it's all wrapped up in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. Did you hear it? 
according to the scriptures, every single person in this auditorium tonight, you're created, designed, fashioned in the image of God. That's your purpose. To know that God has fashioned you to function as His image. That you and I are supposed to display to the world what God is like. We're supposed to image Him. Which brings to the next question, right? Well, what in the world is God like? How are we supposed to reflect Him? And here's where I'd ask you to consider the oddity of verse 26. God says this, Let us make man in our image. There's a lot of debate about who he's talking to, okay? But think about it. Who is God deliberating with right now? He says, singular, God said, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? There's some good reasons to think God's deliberating with himself. Even if the original hearers of this had no picture of a trinity... As you read the Bible, I would suggest that what you're getting hints of is what is true about who God is. That God is actually three persons, one God. That He is both a me and an us. One God existing in three separate persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's a trinity. And so back to our question, think about this. What is God like? Well, that means God has always been and will forever always be not simply a me but an us. Which means God at his core is a relational loving God. He's always been that. God the Father has always been loving the Son. Jesus the Son has always been receiving and delighting in the love of the Father and giving it back to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is all in that as well. And so maybe you see where I'm going. If humanity is made in God's image and made to reflect what the triune God is like, and if God is fundamentally loving and relational, that means you and I are hardwired for relationships. We are hardwired to give and to receive love. That's why when God makes Adam, is what you see in Genesis 2, and Adam in, in, the, in the perfect world that God has made, Adam is simply a me existing in this perfect world, Still, God says, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to just be a me. He can't fully image God alone. And so he makes Eve. Because we bear the image of a relational God, and therefore loving and and receiving love is at the heart of what it means to be human. Plants are designed for light, fish for water, and you are designed for relationships with others. Look, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like you can, you can go to right, the truth of all things, Google, and you can Google solitary confinement. And what you'll realize is that slowly that's going away. Because people are realizing that isolating someone from anybody else is actually dehumanizing. I don't know if you ever heard, uh, well, he's now the late uh, Senator John McCain. Uh, he was, before he became senator, he was a POW in the Vietnam War. If you've read anything about what the Viet Cong did to their POWs, I mean, it was awful. It was complete and utter psychological and physical breakdown. But here's what's unbelievable. Senator McCain was a POW for five years in the Viet Cong uh, POW camp. And he also spent some time in solitary confinement there. 
And he said, you ready? He was more excited when the Viet Cong let him out of solitary confinement than when, when he was actually set free from the POW camp. That solitary confinement was so brutal and so contrary to his nature was utterly breaking him down. See, why is it why is it break our nature? Because we're made in the image of a of a relational loving Trinitarian God. So what that means, shockingly enough, is there is actually nothing more practical than knowing that God is a Trinity. As mysterious as that may, may seem, knowing God is the point. Because in knowing Him, you will know your purpose. And so I'd ask you to dare to let this make sense of you tonight. The, re- it could, like, the reason that this past new week, for so many of you at Ole Miss, was terrifying and anxious, is because you're walking around with thousands of people all around you, but nobody really knows you. And to be in a place where no one knows you and no one loves you, and vice versa. It's terrifying. And loneliness, is, it's because loneliness is against the grain of reality. It's against your design. And God has never been lonely. God creates, not out of loneliness, but out of the fullness of His love for Himself. He creates us. And so being alone grates against your very essence. And it's just okay to admit that this week is harder than you thought it would be. Because all of us want to be fully known and deeply loved. Look, it's one of the driving forces, I would suggest, of why some of you have actually been surprised at the stuff that you've already done in college. Stuff you're maybe ashamed of and you didn't think you were capable of. Because we are formatted for relationships. We want to be known and loved that sometimes it just feels better. To participate in things that I feel like I shouldn't, rather than to feel awkward, left out, and alone. And I get it. It feels that bad to be alone. It's the reason that breakups hurt so badly. And you don't have to be embarrassed by the fact that months later it still hurts. For a relationship to be cut off, even if the breakup was good and necessary, for a relation to be cut off, it hurts. Because it goes against the core of the way that God designed you. It's the reason that some of you had deep scars because the, because the people that should have cared about you abused you. It goes against reality. It's the reason that so many of you in this room have been wounded by divorce. Because you experience the violence of your parents. And it goes against reality. We are literally formatted for community and for relationships with others that to be alone and rejected cuts against the very nature of who we are. Mother Teresa, if you, like if you don't believe me and if you don't believe the Bible, Mother Teresa, who spent her life serving the poor in Calcutta, here's what she said. She said, there is, no, there is a greater poverty than lack of food and shelter. The greatest poverty is, being, is a lack of being wanted and loved. Think about that, someone who spent their life with people who were starving to death. But see, the reverse is also true. Do you know why it feels like life when someone finally engages you in a good conversation and you end up having fun with that person? It's because you're made in the image of a relational God. And you're made to be known and to return that uh, love and uh, and knowing someone. Why, Why does your heart flutter 
when you get that text from her, and it has five exclamation points, and it has a heart emoji, and you get fired up. Yes, it's chemicals in the brain, but who made the chemicals in your brain? The triune God, who is relational. That's why it happens. And so look, all that to say, here's the first point. Your biggest joys and your deepest wounds usually center around relationships. Families, friends, dating. I don't think I have to convince you of that. But what I'm asking you to listen for is that perhaps the reason that's the case is because love and relationships have always been at the heart of who God is and therefore at the heart of who you are because you're made in His image. And so my my quick application is this. That means if you're a Christian tonight, growth as a Christian cannot happen in isolation from other people. Impossible. We want it to. I want the answer to how do I grow as a Christian, just be, read my Bible more, memorize verses, and pray and try harder. Because I can do those things. I, I can control those things. It's just not messy. But if you try to do those things isolated from community, you will always be spiritually unhealthy. So guess what? This is going to sound like a shameless plug, but here we go. Next week, RUF will be rolling out community groups that we call RU Friends. Which are actually places, see what we did, R-U-F, are you friends? Thank you. Um, that's why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, but that is simply a space that we're trying to create where you can actually get to know somebody on a le- level that's a little deeper than, man, what you doing this weekend? Oh, that, that's great. We love talking about that. And that's why you should come on the retreat this weekend. But it also means this. Listen, the most formative parts of your next four years, they're going to be your relationships. The most formative thing in, in your life will be, will be shaped by who you, who you hang out with, who you care about, and who cares about you. You will become like them. That's what this is saying. So first, and by far the longest, we are literally formated, created for relationships with each other. It's one of the reasons we're studying this. But also, we're designed for relationships with God. But, yeah, we're designed for relationships with each other, but this is what's key. Our relationship with each other was never intended to be the supreme and ultimate relationship in humanity's life. But we can't miss the setting of Genesis 1 and 2. Over and over, if you go back and read chapter 1, every day after God creates something, He looks at what He made, and He gives a benediction. He looks at it and He says, it is good. He's pleased with it. And at the, end of, at the end of chapter 1, on the end of, at the end of day 6, when he creates man and woman, he looks at it and he says, very good. In other words, he looks at Adam and Eve, the people that he made, and he pronounces his pleasure, his benediction. And then when you get to chapter 2, which is, which is just kind of rewinding and zooming back in on chapter 6, you find Adam and Eve, here they are living under the benediction of God, and we're told that they are naked and unashamed. And yes, that's a picture that, that before, before each other, they are, they are fully seen down to their core and fully known and fully loved. But the reason that Adam and Eve can so easily and delightfully be free with one another and selflessly love one another is because of this. At this moment in history, without a doubt, they know 
that they are seen before the God of this universe fully. They are naked before the God of this universe, and he loves them, and he delights in them, and he expresses a benediction over them. He says, you are good. Because fundamentally, Adam and Eve knew they were right with God, and so they could relate well with each other. This is the point. We are all made in God's image, which means we were designed ultimately to know who we are and to find our identity, our sense of self and purpose in God, in relationship with Him. Our relationships with each other massively important, but they are penultimate. Because the ultimate relationship is with the God of this universe. Or you could, fray, you could say, oh, my friend Matt Howell says it. Relationships with each other, that's the air that we breathe. They shape us, they form us, they're vital. But they are not the end all be all. They're not the end goal. You were made to be satisfied by the love of God. And to find yourself in Him. And now we enter the fundamental problem of the human heart. And of this world. Because once sin enters the world, we try to reverse this fundamental truth. And we make horizontal relationships. We make our relationships with each other the end-all, be-all. And we try to find our sense of self and our purpose and satisfaction in our horizontal relationships. Whether that's a dating relationship, whether that's a relationship with your parents, whether that's friends. And it always leads to breakdown. Why? Because it goes against your design. I mean, the most obvious example of this, though it's a character, is Michael Scott from The Office. Right? Think about Michael Scott. He's this living example of the crippling destruction of what happens when the only thing that you want, the desperate thing that you need, is friends. Right? The atmosphere is great. Is what? Um, first of all, uh, a friend. Second of all, some, well, third, like an entertainer, right? Something like that. And he says, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Because, because he's convinced the only thing that, that gives him life is if people like him. But what happens in that? And it happens in hilariously awkward ways because he clings to his he clings for friends as an identity. It only pushes people away. It only destroys things. It ends up suffocating them. Because they can't handle it. I think one of the reasons, honestly, that Michael ends up being so endearing to everybody, including me, is because I can connect with him on that. The desperate need to to know that you like me, man, I'll do anything for that. And the desperate need to know that your girlfriend will always be there, there for you and you jealously protect that, that's the very thing that's suffocating the relationship. She won't tell you that, but it is. The doing anything to become whatever I need to be to get that friend is the very thing that's going to leave you lonely. And the scriptures are saying this, that unless you are satisfied in the love of God, you won't love and serve another person freely. Instead, you'll consume them. You'll use them. Because you'll try to get a sense of self out of them rather than loving and serving them. And so this drives us to the final question, right? If we were designed ultimately, ultimately for a relationship with God to know that He looks on us and is fully satisfied and deeply loves us, how in the world do we know that and receive that? 
And look, we're going to talk about this so much more through the semester, so we can only barely hit on it. But the answer is hidden at that in verse uh, 23 and 24 of chapter 2. Adam sees Eve for the first time, and he breaks into a love song. He says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Here is someone other than me, but is like me. Here is someone I love, I see, and I deeply care about, and that person loves and deeply cares about me. At last. And then we're told, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's the first marriage, right? That's cool. But what does it have anything to do with my relationship with God? Well... When you get to the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us something that, honestly, it's mind-boggling. He quotes Genesis 2.24, this statement, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife and become one flesh with her. And he says this, that mystery is profound. And I'm saying it is talking about Christ and the church. Did you hear that? Paul points to Genesis 2.24, the first marriage where Adam and Eve are looking at each other, naked and unashamed, holding fast to one another, so united that they are one flesh. And he says that, ultimately, is actually about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and how he loves his people. That's crazy. Does that sound like a fairy tale to you tonight? Does that sound too good to be true? There's a true story I've told before. I'll probably tell it once a year. But back in 1859, you can actually look this up, okay? There's a 20-year-old lady, daughter of a Presbyterian pastor, delightfully engaged to be married. And her wedding week, that Monday, she contracted typhoid fever. It moved quickly. It took her life the day before she was supposed to get married. And, of course, it's 1859, so there's no way to really get the news out fast. So everybody out of town who had been invited to this wedding showed up anyway. And so these people showed up for what they thought was going to be a wedding, and instead it was a funeral. And her dad, shockingly enough, actually preached the funeral. And he started talking about his daughter Nancy, and he said, here's what, he said, here's what I want you all to know. That when she realized she wasn't going to make it to her wedding day, when she realized she was dying, she started comforting us and she started saying, as awful as this is, I'm excited I get to see Jesus. I'm excited I get to be one of the first ones. I get to see him face to face. Honestly, what do you do with that if it's a true story? Because that's, I mean, it's awful and tragic. What do you do with her excitement That the love of Jesus is so real that it actually overwhelmed the fact that she was dying the day before her wedding. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes when I think about that story, I actually doubt whether it's true. I have to keep Googling it. Because it just sounds like a fantasy. And then second of all, I start doubting whether I'm actually a Christian. Because I don't think I love Jesus like that. But honestly, if it is true... If it's not just a fairy tale, what if there was a kind of love that could actually do that to somebody? And see, the whole scriptures are telling us the story of this world. And if you'll read it, it's actually the ultimate love story. 
Because it's actually what Nancy was clinging to. If you keep reading the Bible, here's what you find. That though we rebel, though we turn from God, though we're broken, the triune God, the second person of the Trinity, you know what he does? He leaves, in a sense, his Father. He leaves the glories of heaven. And he becomes a human. Ready? He becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. And Jesus, the God-man, who now is the capital I image of God, he shows you exactly what God is like because he's God in the flesh and he shows us what man is supposed to be. And he comes to this earth and he's rejected by everybody and he ends up being put on a cross and he dies. Why does he die? You know what the answer is? So that he can become one flesh with his wife, the church, his people, us who have rejected him. You see, on the cross, think about this picture. Jesus is holding fast to his bride, to his church. He's holding, he's holding his church, his people, so close. He's one flesh with them. He's united so close to them. That you know what happens? My sin and my brokenness and my shame, it covers Jesus. And he becomes that on a cross. And Jesus' perfection and Jesus' beauty and Jesus' righteousness covers me. Because you're one flesh with Jesus by faith. And on the cross, Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold so fast to you, I'd rather die than not have you. This is the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the love that you were made for. This is the relationship that you're supposed to find yourself in. It's the only love that will truly satisfy you. The one that comes from Jesus, the great bridegroom. And so I'll end with this. Remember, right, Nancy, this kind of horrible tragedy? Again, you can look this up. They buried Nancy that day, the day she was supposed to be married. And I think it was at her request. They buried her in her wedding dress. And her tombstone says this. You can still go read it in South Carolina. It says, her death was triumphant and glorious. She descended to the grave, you ready? Adorned as a bride to meet her groom, Jesus. Look, I, I almost didn't share that story tonight because it feels like emotional manipulation. Maybe it is. I don't know. Uh-huh. But I, I, I really want to end. I really just want to end by asking you to consider, what if this story isn't a fairy tale? What if the scriptures are true? What if your purpose really is wrapped up in God's design for you, which means, yes, you're designed for relationships with each other, but ultimately, unbelievably, you're designed to know fundamentally who you are in relationship with God. A God that is so good and so loving and so gracious that knowing Him through the work of the cross means He can satisfy you so deeply that it changes every other relationship. Dating, family, marriage, sex, singleness, and everything else. Wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't it be worth it of your time to just keep coming back every week to hear who God is and what His design is for us if that's who God is? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would um, do what Jesus did so often. He healed people's sight. And would you give us the eyes of our heart to see that you really are who you say that you are, that you are a God who wants to be with his people, that you're a God who 
died for us and lives for us. And would you give us the faith to receive that tonight and live in it for the first time or the thousandth time. In Jesus' name, amen.